Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. The availability of pharmacist-administered vaccination has grown in recent decades, and proximity to a pharmacy has been found to be predictive of vaccine use. In Florida, Publix grocery stores were the first retail pharmacies to provide COVID-19 vaccinations to those members of the public who were eligible. And for more than a month after the initial rollout, Publix remained the sole retail pharmacy authorized to administer COVID-19 vaccines. Now, grocery stores would seem to be a natural way to reach a large share of the population. But grocery stores are not located evenly throughout communities. Disparities in access to COVID-19 vaccines during the initial rollout in Florida is the topic of today's health policy. I'm here with Dr. Jennifer Atenido, an instructor of health administration in the Florida Atlantic University College of Business. Dr. Atenido and co-authors published a paper in the December 2021 issue of Health Affairs that analyzed the locations of public stores in Florida and found that where they're located doesn't always line up with where the needs are greatest. We'll discuss these findings and put them in the context of broader research on vaccine disparities in today's episode. Dr. Adonido, welcome to the program. Hi there. Thanks for having me on the show. And I'd like to also thank my co-authors for letting me uh, represent them. Well, I'm so happy to have you with us today. And in order to make sense of your research, I think it's important to just sort of set the stage. Take us back to December 2020. The first shipment of COVID-19 vaccines has arrived in Florida. The state has to figure out how to distribute them. And the supply initially is pretty limited. So what's happening at this point? Great start. We actually have to go a little bit before December, though. Um, Okay. So, yeah, states drafted their initial COVID rollout plans in October. And I believe all of them. I looked at a lot of states to check out their initial rollout plans. It looked like they all kind of did them in October. And so that's where it began. And initial rollout in December, by when they when the first doses were received, were pretty consistent throughout the states. Um, And the plans were were indeed based on anticipated availability and supply. Um, Florida received, and I'm I'm looking at something right now, Florida received 179,000 first doses of Pfizer on December 14th and 368,000 first doses of Moderna December 21st. So that's where everything was. And so phase one for all of the states really had the same priorities. It was hospital workers, first responders, nursing homes, pretty much the same everywhere. So for those couple of weeks in December, we didn't see a lot of difference. Um, operations in Florida were coordinated through the Department of Health first, which seemed like a pretty sensible plan. CVS and Walgreens were still involved at this point. They had a contract with the federal government through Operation Warp Speed. So they were helping with uh, delivery in the long-term care facilities. But apparently, they were kind of inefficient. And so the state of Florida decided to withdraw them from that re- that responsibility. Um And then when access expanded more in January uh, to other healthcare workers and seniors who were not in long-term care facilities, um, then that's where we started to see some divergence in the delivery methods between states. 
Okay, so we have priority populations that are pretty consistent around the country. We have limited supply, and the supply goes to those priority populations. Now we move out of healthcare workers and institutions and into the community, and now you have to find people where they are, and where they are isn't just these few locations. Retail, pharmacies seems like the natural place to go. What did Florida do at this point? So at this point, um, at this point, DeSantis announced at the the beginning of January, uh, this is the governor of Florida, um, DeSantis announced in the beginning of January that uh, the state was going to contract with Publix uh, retail pharmacy outlets throughout the state to be the primary retail uh, delivery method uh, here. And so they, but the Department of Health was still going to receive doses. Hospitals were still going to receive doses as well. So this was supplemental. The reasoning was the abundance of stores, and it didn't not make sense. There are over 800 public stores in the state. Um, so the public's received about uh, a quarter of the initial doses, with the rest going to hospitals and Department of Health. And this was a little chaotic at first, as you might remember where you were as well. I'm sure people were confused. There was limited supply. Everyone's scrambling, trying to get an appointment. And for Publix, and I'm not sure how it worked with the Department of Health, you had to get online and make an appointment. Now, the target population was mainly seniors, and they weren't necessarily tech savvy. So it was confusing for sure. Um, Florida was not the only state that shows retail outlets, so that's important to keep in mind. What was kind of unique is that Florida allowed Publix to govern its own distribution plan, uh, whereas other states that chose retail outlets, um, the state governed how the distribution would take place. Okay, so I live in Virginia, and I remember the chaos. You're right, it it existed everywhere, but it was under sort of this umbrella of allocation decisions being made by the state. Um, Publix is now in charge of distributing this one quarter of the supply, as you said. Um, Setting aside sort of whether or not that should have been under some external control for how they went about doing it, your study really focuses on what the implications are of using that distribution channel. So talk to us about the characteristics of the communities where those stores are. As you say, it doesn't not make sense. So so what is what is it that we need to look at? So that is the gist of the study. Okay, we didn't look at who was get, showing up and getting the vaccines. We were only looking at where are these stores and where are the the uh, the vaccines being distributed. Um, we wanted to look at. We wanted to know if there were any sociodemographic and ethnic disparities between these different sites, and that's it. Um, we looked at education levels, ethnicity, race, percent at or below the poverty level median income, and single-parent households, which are pretty typical factors when you're looking at disparities, right? And all of this was extracted from the 2019 census, and we looked at the geographic distribution of the zip, at the zip code level for all the public sites with and without vaccines. And um, that's what we did. <laughs> we mapped it all out, and we analyzed the data to see if there were differences in these places. So those are a lot of dimensions, but as you say, they're the natural dimensions to look at if you're concerned about equity. So start walking us through some of those characteristics. Where are the stores, and how does that compare to the need? 
Great question. So we were actually surprised to see how much disparity there really was. Um, I thought, well, we might find a few, but really we found a lot. I think the most, the first thing that jumped out at us was even though there were eight over 800 public stores in the state, only 18% of the zip codes actually had a public store distributing vaccines. Now, admittedly, there was limited supply, so there were not all of them were going to be able to. Um, the public stores were clustered in whiter, wealthier areas. Many of the zip codes had some, many of those zip codes had multiple vac vaccination sites. And when we compared the, the means of these factors that I listed, um, it showed disparities across the board. Um, there were huge educational differences in zip codes without a public store. 49% of the population had no no college education, but with the zips where there were public space based vaccines, only 36% had no college education. And we also saw racial and ethnic disparities in zip codes without a public based vaccine. 27% of the population were Hispanic ethnicity, whereas in zip codes where vaccines were offered, only 14% were Hispanic. And then in terms of race, zip codes with public vaccines, 14% were non white, where 19% were non-white in zip codes without a public store. The median household income was completely different. Where there were public, where there were no public stores, the median household income was forty-nine thousand dollars. But in zip codes that had the vaccines, it was sixty-three thousand dollars. So it was it was definitely a difference. And then then we mapped everything out. We looked at the map. Um, so we saw clusterings in the areas where we expected. And now all of the our team are. Florida base. So we kind of knew where to look. We know our state pretty well. And we saw what we kind of what we expected to see. There were uh, hot spots where we had a lot of distribution um, in the southwest region, like around Naples, if you know Florida at all, um, along the southeast region uh, from Fort Lauderdale through Palm Beach County, the east side of Palm Beach County along the Treasure Coast, little, some spots in the Panhandle, and then cold spots in the rural areas and inner city Miami. Um, so these are the outcomes that uh, I guess we expected, but we were surprised how much. When we're looking at equity, we're not just looking at supply, we're looking at demand and need. And as you noted at the outset, with limited supply, there were targeted populations. We're talking about the early stages where there isn't enough to go around. A lot has been written about inequitable distribution. What do we know about the alignment of the characteristics you described with the characteristics of the population we were trying to reach early on in the pandemic? Great question. So I guess you're asking, did Florida hit its target in a sense, right? So keeping in mind, this is only for January 2021, and we're just looking at the distribution sites. The state did manage to meet the target of providing vaccine outlets in uh, locations where there were high proportions of older people. And so that was a top priority. That's that's a good thing. Um, but it also meant that the state failed to ensure that minority, poor, and rural populations would have equal access through the public's retail sites. Now, that's not to say they had zero access because there were distribution sites through the hospitals and the Department of Health, but it wasn't as much. There were fewer options. Without having publics, you didn't have as many options. Um, the problem also is that Black and Hispanic people were nearly five times more likely to be hospitalized for COVID. So even though they weren't, that was not an eligibility criteria at the time, eligibility criteria were just being older or a healthcare worker, they were more affected in, you know, to a large degree. 
So I want to follow up on this notion of what equity means, because you've really hit uh, the nail on the head there. We'll do that after we take a short break. Hi, I'm Leslie Erdelak. And I'm Vabron Watts. Hey, Leslie, the Health Affairs Podcast Network is really growing. I know, Vabe, our new podcast, Health Affairs This Week, places listeners at the center of health policy's proverbial water cooler. Each week, our trusted editors discuss this week's most pressing health policy news, all in 15 minutes or less. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen and join the fun. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Jennifer Atanito about a paper describing the role of Publix grocery stores in distributing COVID vaccines in the early stages of the pandemic in Florida. Before the break, we were right on this really key issue, which is that the target population broadly defined in the early stages was age-based. It was elders. But the there were huge disparities in the burden of COVID-19 that were by race, ethnicity, and perhaps other dimensions as well. So when we ask the question, did we reach an older population? You can answer that yes, but still leave out of that answer the question of whether you are addressing the disparities. So let's go a little bit deeper in that. Can you line up the disparities in the burden of COVID-19 that you mentioned right before the break with what you found in the paper about the availability of vaccines through the public's uh, grocery stores and how they're distributed relative to how the burden was distributed? I think, you know, I think what's important is that decisions had to be made quickly at this time. And so it was the right decision to say that the target should be the older people. They were being, they were definitely being affected in a very bad way at the time. And to, to make things like income and race and ethnicity and eligibility factor wouldn't have made sense, of course. Um, the problem is that, so that even though Florida did manage to hit the target for meeting the needs of the older population, that's specifically the whiter, richer older population, not necessarily the older population in these areas um, that were so affected. Now, you note that in February, additional distribution channels open up. So first of all, I'm curious, I mean, is, is that just a matter of supply or is it a matter of understanding the limitations of the public's distribution channel? Did it address the barriers that you identified in your paper? Well, that's, I think, two questions. First of all, I think it was a matter of supply. Having more of them just gave an opportunity to make it more available in many places. So sure, things began to change in the month, months that followed. Um, rollout was phased, and so they had to hit the, the greatest need first. And supply grew in incrementally, and more vaccine sites were added, and other retailers were added. CVS was added in regions that didn't previously have access to the public's vaccines. So with these increasing supplies, there were definitely more opportunities for people to get vaccinated. And I'm sure you recall wherever you are, it didn't happen all at once. So even in February, even in March, we were still waiting. And during that time, we continued to see COVID cases grow. And in Florida, we had our biggest spike in August, just when we thought, oh, we have it all covered, we're doing great. And then all of a sudden, we had more, more cases than ever. This said, even though we had uh, much greater access to the vaccines, disparities were continuing. 
So uh, I just looked at a study actually that took place in April that showed that continued low vac vaccination rates were happening among Hispanic and black populations in Florida compared to whites. So this is April, it's four months later, and yes, the disparities were continuing. Now, early on, you mentioned that different states took, took different approaches. I wonder if taking an approach that sort of didn't, at the front end, look at these kinds of potential inequities in distribution is unique to Florida, or if you think other states were looking at this saying, wow, we really need to figure out a distribution mechanism that head-on addresses the greater burden of this disease on uh, certain populations? That's, I think that's a really important question. So I mentioned that, uh, that decisions had to be made quickly, but distribution plans were drafted in October. So thought had already been given to this. And in the distribution plans that I looked at, at for different states, each one comprised some kind of um, advisory group or task force that helped to guide this distribution plan. And I noticed that Florida's was mostly comprised of Department of Health, um, healthcare organizations, and, uh, and state representatives. Um, and Texas was similar to that. Uh, but if you look at places like New York and California, not surprisingly, they had more advocacy groups involved. They had uh, representatives of uh, marginalized populations, homeless people, different minority groups. Um, California even had the ACLU involved in their plan. So, yeah, I think that who was involved in, in um, kind of pushing that agenda forward probably had some impact on how the decisions were made. So if you were to start over, and I, I think we all have to acknowledge, as you said, decisions had to be made quickly, and there was a lot we didn't know then. There's still a lot we don't know, but there was a whole lot we didn't know then. Uh, but we did know historically about uh, inequitable access to vaccines. Um, so had you been in that room building the plan, uh, what would you have suggested Florida do differently? I, I love that you asked this question. I was just thinking about this last night and I was thinking about, there was a song from Hamilton, The Room Where It Happened. And I wanted to, I was thinking how much I would have wanted to be in the room where it happened. Um, I probably would have had input from representatives from a variety of populations, only because it, it's not that it's not known. We do know the disparities exist, but these advocacy groups will push for the needs of who they represent. And if those needs had been more at the center, what, from a policy perspective, do you think could have been done differently? As you say, you looked at the plans of other states, you, you looked at states where those voices were heard. What, what uh, at the end of the decision-making process, what implication do you think that would have had? I think it might have... Um... Well, it's hard to say. You know, I think it might have uh, led to utilizing multiple outlets instead of only publics. I think that we could have looked at um, other retail outlets, other non-retail outlets, just to make sure that we're really hitting the pockets that were unmet. And is your sense that once the additional channels opened up, I know you said you looked at recent study that said there there are still disparities. Um, of course, disparities can arise from multiple uh, origins, and equitable availability in terms of geography is only one dimension of, of equity. Um, 
do you have a sense of whether things have gotten better or is the whole premise here of availability not the right metric? I'm not entirely sure. You know, I'm not sure it is the right metric because now we do have really broad access, right? And But we're still seeing lower uptake um, in rural areas, in black areas, um, poorer areas. And so I don't know if it's if access is the only thing we should be looking at. I think that there I think there are a lot of factors involved in this and I don't know how to answer. I don't know how to solve the problem, right? I, I think you have you're in good company. There are a lot of people trying to find their way. I would say that one thing that um, I has been a factor is Florida didn't expand Medicaid. And states that didn't expand Medicaid are seeing lower uptake. So that could be, you know, one of those dimensions that could be driving um, uptake. So before we close, I, I want to ask a totally different question. You're in a college of business. When we publish articles at Health Affairs, that's not the normal biography of an author. Uh, tell me how being in that environment affects how you look at these questions, how you approach uh, the research. I'd just love to hear a little bit about that. Oh, thank you for asking. It's not the first time I've been asked that question. So my doctorate's in public health, and uh, and my research is in public health, obviously. And I started working in healthcare administration, uh, this, this program here. And it's been eye-opening because it's not an area where we're, in, at least in traditional public health training programs, we're not really trained in healthcare delivery. And so getting an opportunity to really understand the, that intersection between healthcare delivery and public health has opened my eyes to the importance of, of that marriage and strengthening that relationship. So with that in mind, we're now significantly farther along in the timeline of COVID vaccination. What's next in terms of uh, research interests that will add to our understanding of this topic? I, I think in general, um, it's the uh, it's the respons the responsibility of public health researchers. We're not we're not really here to give the good news. It's not what we do. We give the bad news. We hold up mirrors and show ugly things. But you know, it, we're we're a couple of years into the pandemic, and we really have to look back on the decisions that were made and examine and evaluate scientifically whether they were the right decisions or not because personally and i think i think that most epidemiologists would say the same thing there will be more pandemics and so in order to be better prepared i think that that's one thing that we have to really consider is how were decisions made and were they the right ones in between pandemics we still have to we still have to deal with our disparity problems and florida is it's not a unique case but it is an extreme case and um, this is uh, just one of many studies, I think, that like, holds up that mirror and shows some of the problems. And we just have to keep digging and trying to find better solutions for it, because I don't think what we're doing is not enough. Well, Dr. Adonito, thank you so much for the paper and the scholarship and for the conversation that uh, really does elucidate the complexity of trying in very short order to distribute to a priority population in a world where pre-existing inequities make sort of uh, what seem, as you said, not unreasonable uh, ideas, maybe a little bit more complex. So I, I really appreciate the insight you've provided and thanks for being my guest here on A Health Policy. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed my time.
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.